Good morning, Illuminate. It's always good to be with you. Happy Palm Sunday. Got a uh, special announcement to bring you before uh, we get into the message this morning. Um, You don't have to look far to see that God is moving here at the church. We plant, we water, but someone else causes the growth, right? God, God causes the growth. And by his grace, over the last month, we've experienced um, another sort of little growth movement here at the church. You know, we've moved to uh, three services, and actually last Sunday was our largest service outside of Christmas and Easter. Uh, with adult, adults in services, the three services, 1,184 adults, about 180 kids. All of that, by God's grace, and just in time for our remodel to start two weeks from now, all right? So... <laughs> Thank you, God. So that means a couple things for us. So let me, let me lay it out to you, all right? First of all, what's going to happen is it's the remodel of our lobby. So all of that is getting blown out and expanded greatly. All the way down through the hallway, we're getting a nice, nice big bank of bathrooms, separate bathrooms just for the ladies first, right? Easy access and entrance. You're welcome. Yes. Thank my wife. Um, and then a bank for uh, bathrooms for the men, just right outside these doors here, uh, right up against the wall. And then the hallway gets widened, and then where our offices are in the back and where the kids' rooms are, all that gets blown out for an amplified children's ministry space. It will be nice, safe, secure. They will have their own bathrooms at the very end. The bathrooms that are back there now will be just for the kids to use. So. It's going to be amazing. All of that starts literally April 10th, the day after Easter. And so what that means for us as a church family is we're actually going to have a couple of good old-fashioned volunteer work days. So it's going to be on Saturday, April 16th, sorry, 15th, and then the following Saturday, April 22nd. What kind of stuff are we talking about? Really just nothing heavy-duty, guys. It's basically like removing ceiling tiles and maybe taking some TVs off the walls, getting the stuff that's out of our kids' ministry, because all of that stuff is going to be repurposed in the gym. So if you want to be a part of that, go to illuminatecommunity.com backslash event. So let's throw up the next slide. This is going to be for those of you who have kids. So again, two weeks from Sunday when we come in, it's going to be very different. Our main entrance now is going to be these back doors here because that lobby area is going to be scraped, all right? Now, if you've got kids, here's where it changes for you, just a heads up. So kids' check-in is going to be on the west side of the building where the loading dock is, right? And so we're taking the gym, which is the space right behind this wall in fifth and sixth grade room, and repurposing that for our children's area. So parents, you'll take your kids up the ramp. We'll check them in securely, and then we'll usher them into that children's space. Additionally, fifth and sixth grade and our special needs ministry will be meeting in the building right to the west, right over here. We've leased some space over there. We've also got all of those parking spaces for overflow as well, which is an additional about 80 or so. The project is going to take about six months is what we're thinking. So we'd covet your prayers for that. But just know I won't say anything next week, obviously, because we'll, we'll be with our Easter crowd. But then the, the Saturday, Sunday after that is when things will be quite a bit uh, different. We're going to push all of our hospitality stuff out into the lot. So we're not scaling back 
on the things that, um, that we do to welcome people, especially our new people. We're not scaling any of that back. It's just gonna move out into the lot. So we're putting together a Q&A sheet of frequently asked questions that might help as well. But for now, if you can earmark the 15th and 22nd. There will also be some opportunities just to show up during the week and to help out. Because like I say, there's gonna be a lot of action, a lot of movement going on. And I think it's also, I can share this with you, it's safe to say, God is just, you know, he keeps going before us. Uh, it, it looks like we're pretty certain that we will have the upstairs space, we will have access to it a year from now. So 12 months from now, and that will be offices, and then all of our student ministries will be moved up there. So we're planning on that roughly about 12 months uh, from now, so more on that uh, to come, cool? And then, and then, oh my gosh, I'm giving you so much. And then from there, what happens is the last phase, uh, actually probably gonna be the second phase because of our growth situation is that this wall gets removed and moved back into the gym, but we need to make sure all of our kids' areas uh, are ready uh, for that move, and then we can uh, add additional seating here and um, maybe go back to two services. Although those, those eight o'clock people, they're like, man, can you make it 6 a.m.? We'll be there. And I'm like, man, you guys are sick, man. God bless you, you know? Yeah. So anyways, a lot to pray for, guys. So here's the deal. Today is a special day. We're gonna do something that stands in this long line of tradition for the last several hundred years. Christians have been gathering together and celebrating the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And uh, it's not what people think or expect. And the details of the narrative are, they're fascinating because essentially what's gonna happen is this. Jesus arrives on the scene and people were waving palm branches in, in front of him. And this was a traditional sign of adoration and praise. It's the way that you would receive a king as they rolled into the city, wave palm branches in front of him. And so Jesus receives all of this. And essentially what he's saying is, that's right, I am a king. but I'm not the king you all want me to be. However, I am the king that you need me to be. I'm not the king you want me to be. Uh, I'm not gonna meet all of your expectations, but I am actually the king that you need me to be, even though you don't fully realize it. And so there are a number of important details in the text that reveal exactly who Jesus is and what he came to do. And surrounding him are these various audiences. For example, there are those who have been following Jesus and they're just fascinated. Jesus has been dropping profound truths. They've never heard anything like it. He's been feeding people, thousands of people with next to nothing, Short time earlier, he raises a man named Lazarus from the dead. Been performing all kinds of miracles, healing the blind, healing the sick. And there's never been anybody like him. And they can't believe that they are in the presence of someone so great. Could it be, could it be that this is the Messiah? Hundreds of years worth of Old Testament prophecy pointing forward to a forthcoming savior. Could this be him? So these are, these are the common people. And they're just captivated by him. Also, uh, in the crowd observing Jesus is uh, this group, they're, they're really wound up. They are the Jewish zealots. And they are ready to throw down. They, they are hoping to start some kind of rebellion and, 
and overthrow the oppressive shackles of Roman government. For the most part, the Romans allowed the Jews to do what they wanted, but, but they couldn't do everything. And so these Jewish zealots, man, they wanted to be absolutely set free from Roman oppression. Could Jesus be their leader? There's never been a Jew as popular as Jesus for a long, long time. And now this guy arrives, a lot of people are for him. Could he be the one that helps us overthrow this tyrannical system that we want to get out from underneath of? Could it be Jesus? So these are the, think of these guys as just, they're, they're, they're really, they're amped up. They're drinking, uh, you know, like Red Bull and Monster and they're smashing the cans on their forehead and they're like, let's throw down, let's, like, let's throw down. Could Jesus be their leader? There's, an, there's another group uh, and uh, they represent the government. I can just picture the Roman soldiers stationed on the rooftops and they're watching the situation very carefully because it is Passover week. And if there was ever a time for the Jews to get out of line, it would be during their high holy work. Think of, think of like uh, Christmas, Easter, Mardi Gras, July 4th, Super Bowl, all rolled into one. Passover was their, their high holy religious gathering. The city of Jerusalem would swell in population. Every good God-fearing Jew would be there to participate in this time of remembrance when God delivered the nation of Israel out from underneath the ruthless hand of the Egyptian Pharaoh. They're all there to celebrate. Things could get out of hand. So they're watching the situation. They're observing. And to some degree, they're reporting back to the one in command the governor of Judea is a guy by the name of Pontius Pilate. By the way, I should say this. The Bible writes about real people in real places in real times. You've heard me say before, the narratives don't start with once upon a time in a land far away or here's the fable of or the myth. It's written in the style of historical narrative. So because of that, we should see things in history that bear this out, bear the truth of this. And, and in fact, we do when it comes to this man, Pontius Pilate. A few years ago, archaeologists uncovered a stone in the region of Judea with an inscription that dated to the first century AD. You can actually see it in the Israeli Museum of History in Jerusalem to this day. And it has an interesting name on it. You know what the name is? Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate. Bible talks about real people in real times and real places, okay? This isn't mythological stuff, all right? It's rooted in history, okay? So this guy is the, is the governor. And uh, he's an interesting guy. He, um, the last thing that he wants is for any kind of uprising to happen under his watch because it's going to be bad for him. So he's staying on top of this. And it's, it's like the question, okay, well, what's happening? What's happening there in Jerusalem? Well, this, this Jesus of Nazareth is coming. Okay, well, what is he riding on? Well, he's riding a donkey. And what are the people doing? Are, are, they, are they waving swords? No, they're waving palm branches. Okay, okay. And I think from, from some standpoint, you know, Pontius is, is thinking, these silly Jews, if they think they're gonna overthrow the Roman government, they've got another thing coming. So here's the deal, boys. Keep a close eye on them because if things get out of control, put the smack down. Do what only the Roman government can do and exercise full authority and put an end to whatever rebellion might come about. Keep your eye on this guy, Jesus. Let's see how this plays itself out. No, Pilate has no idea what role he will play at the end of the week. There's a fourth group there. And these guys are probably the most vicious of all. And they are religious. 
Jesus saved some of his harshest words for religious people, in fact, religious leaders, a group known as the Pharisees. They hated Jesus because Jesus would point out their hypocrisy. And at this point in the game, Jesus has become very popular. The crowds are gathering. They're shouting, Hosanna, which literally means save us. They want him dead. They plot more earnestly to kill him. And ultimately, they will have him nailed to a cross. They think they have succeeded, but in fact, Jesus is in control of their every move. So Luke writes, and when Luke writes, he doesn't mention any palm branches being waved. Matthew does, but Luke gives you a little bit of the backstory of what happens before Jesus enters Jerusalem, and it's fascinating and important. We read this in Luke chapter 19, verse 28. And when he, Jesus, has said these things, so he's been teaching them a parable about the coming of God's kingdom. And most people there are like, well, that's going to come like tomorrow, right? Jesus, tomorrow. And they didn't fully understand that first he had to be crucified and resurrected. So he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. Whenever you read about Jerusalem in the, in the Bible and someone traveling there, the text will say that they are going up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem sits on a hill. Verse 29, so when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, two little towns about a mile and a half, two miles away from Jerusalem, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, and he tells them this. Here you go, guys. Go into the village, a small little village here in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. This is an interesting detail. We'll talk about that in a moment. Untie it and bring it to me. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, sure enough, its owner said to them, why are you untying this colt? Right? Like it doesn't belong to you. And they said, well, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. All right, so Jesus walks from, he's in the area of, of Galilee, from Galilee to Jerusalem, that's a long distance. Even today by car, it's a, it's a couple hours. So before approaching Jerusalem, he stops and he says, all right, guys, here's the deal. I'm not going to walk into Jerusalem. That's not how I'm going to arrive. Here's how this is going to go down. You're going to go into this little town here. You're going to find a donkey that's never been ridden before. You're going to untie it. Someone's going to stop you. Hey, what are you doing? You tell them the Lord needs it. And then you bring it to me. And that's exactly what happens. Now, here's where the details get interesting. I find this fascinating. Like, how does this advance the narrative, the larger narrative? Because it's like the point of the story is Jesus comes proclaiming himself as a king. He gets crucified, raised to life, and that's the exclamation mark of Christianity. You've heard us say before, why is Christianity a thing? Why is it even here? Why is it around resurrection? Okay, that's the answer. So that's the focal point of the story. But then these authors give you all, all these little narrative details that don't seem to advance the larger story. So why are they there? Well, it turns out they're really, really important. I'll get there in a second. But let's, let's for example, understand that the authors are, they're wanting, they want to communicate something to you. They want to show you who Jesus is. So have you ever tried to ride a horse or a donkey that's never been ridden before? Now, the text says it's never been ridden before. So... Many years ago, I was young, I was a teenager, uh, I was with a, a, a group of my friends, we were on a mission trip, and we were helping to build a, an, an orphanage in Imaris, Mexico. And I don't know if there were girls watching or what, <laughs> but 
One of my friends, his name was Dave, great athlete, super fast. He decided that he was going to do something that uh, nobody else would attempt to do. Next to the orphanage, there was a field, and there's about half a dozen donkeys there. So Dave says, hey, I'm going to run up to one of those donkeys and jump on it. Now, understand that a 16, 17-year-old brain isn't fully developed. <laughs> it's just not. It's science, right? It's just not. It's just not all there. So you start thinking thoughts like this, you know? And I, even I'm thinking, ooh, this would be cool, you know? This would be going to freaking ride a donkey, you know? Do it, bro. So he runs up to the donkeys. Of course, they get spooked. He gets a little too close, runs up behind one, and it kicks him. Dave gets donkey kicked in the thigh. Goes from like purple to green to yellow. You know what I'm saying? The bruise is just gnarly. I'm like, dude, you you don't want to break your femur in Mexico. That's not going to go well for you. (laughs) Jesus gets on on an animal that has never been ridden before. What's the author communicating? See, the whole life and ministry of Jesus is this. Hey, I come from God, and I have the power of God. And God will display his glory and validate my message through the miracles. Watch me command nature. Stormy sea is calm. The blind are given sight. This wild animal bends its will to the will of the creator. The details are important. And and more so, Matthew actually tells you, you want to know why all these little narrative details are there? It's really important. Matthew chapter 21, this took place, this whole thing went down to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, which is another name for Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. Jerusalem, your king is coming to you. Great, how are we going to know who he is? Like, how can we identify him? Well, he's coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So 600 years earlier, this prophet Zechariah speaks about a forthcoming Messiah. One of the ways you can identify him is he's going to arrive in the most humble way on a donkey. Now, donkeys, uh, picture the donkey from Shrek, right? (laughs) Just super affable and like fun-loving and totally non-threatening. That's a donkey. So what you may know is that during times of peace, kings would ride into town on a donkey. And what they were proclaiming is, hey, Peace, peace to you. But in times of war, they would ride into town on what? A white war horse, a a war beast. And the message was, yes, I'm here, and, and I am a king, and I am here to conquer and to wage war. The donkey represents a king who comes in humility, And this is the ride that Jesus chooses. So Jesus is communicating something here about himself. I am a king, but not the kind of king you all expect. 
And so how does, you know, think of the reaction from each one of these four different groups, you know. The Roman soldiers are looking and they're going, a donkey ride? Okay, I'm not so sure this guy poses a huge threat. He's not riding a war horse, right? And the people are waving palm branches. They're not waving swords. But they are, they are proclaiming him as a king. And that's not, that, we don't like the sound of that because there is only one king and that is Caesar. So we're going to keep an eye on that. The Jewish zealots, they're totally disappointed because they want the white war horse, you know. And when they see him arriving on a donkey, they're, well, this isn't it. This isn't what we want or expect. We're not talking humility or peace. We're talking violence. And we want Jesus to come with the sword and, and chop up Romans. And Jesus is like, what good would that do if I came bringing you some political revolution? This won't be a political revolution. This is going to be a revolution of the heart. And I'm not coming to save you from Rome. I'm coming to save you from yourself. Who needs that? So the zealots aren't having it. And then there's this group that's heard about Jesus, eagerly awaiting for him in the city. Word has spread. Relatively common people here in this crowd. John chapter 10 and John chapter 12 describes it. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. He's at the height of his popularity. His reputation precedes him. So they took branches of palm trees, went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. So these people are like, you know, they're like bringing their grills. They're shooting off fireworks. This is like, a, this is like mid, middle America, 4th of July. This, is, this could be our guy, everybody. This is a huge, can't believe that I'm alive, perhaps, to celebrate the entrance of our Messiah. They also didn't understand the purpose for which Jesus would arrive completely. And we know how the week ends because of the reaction of this last crowd. The religious leaders are absolutely furious at this. They're out of their minds. And they immediately begin to plot. We gotta get rid of this guy once and for all. This dude has to die. He's not leaving this city alive. We need to make sure he breathes his last breath very soon. He was such a threat to them. As you'll see, they continue to have this authority problem, and it grows. So Jesus uh, was not what people expected. Same is true today, by the way. He was the king they needed him to be, but not who they wanted him to be. The history of human kings isn't a great one. Because anytime someone comes on the scene and says, <clears throat> give me your power. Surrender your authority to me. And in return, I'll make your life better. <laughs> the history of human kings is not a great one for humanity. Jesus arrives in a very different way. He arrives in humility and then ultimately what he will end up doing by the end of the week is he will exchange this royal crown that is rightly his for a crown of thorns. In Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul lays down some real fat theology. It's, so, it's super rich. And what he does is, is he says, you know, let me tell you about the attitude and heart of Jesus. 
because at its core is humility. And he talks about being unified in the church. And essentially, one of his points is, we're never going to be unified as a community without humility. You see, if you're constantly thinking of yourself as more important than others, there will never be any unity in your life. So humility breeds unity. And then he says, here's the great thing about our leader, Jesus. He's got skin in the game. He doesn't just talk it. He did it. And so then Paul goes on in Philippians chapter 2 to say that Jesus, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant and being made in the likeness, likeness of men. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's a thick theological thread that needs to be untangled. Here's what he's saying. In humility, Jesus thought of others as more important than himself. So here's this king. And this king doesn't come saying, give me all your power. Instead, this king says, I'm going to give up my power. All the rights and privileges that I had before coming to the earth with God, I'm putting all those on the shelf and I'm going to take on human flesh. Jesus got tired. He got exasperated. It's, it's, you know, I just think there are these conversations that Jesus has with his disciples, and at some point, it's like Jesus is like, guys, are we still asking the same questions? <laughs> He's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and his sweat became as drops of blood. Whether you take that literally or figuratively, it was a rough go for Jesus. And I've had anxious moments, but not to the point where I'm, suffering that intensely. And he knows what it's like to take on human flesh, yet he was without sin. But he faced temptations common to us all, persevered without sin. And he took this all the way to the cross, meaning that he allowed himself to be crucified to fulfill the greater plan of God. Because God can't turn a blind eye to all the wrongs that we've done. Otherwise, he wouldn't be holy and just. So, so all of, the, of the, the weight of the sin's world fall on Jesus. He does his atoning work. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. That's why Jesus had to die. He takes your death upon himself, satisfies the righteous anger of a holy God toward all that is jacked up in the world, because you and I, to some degree, contribute to it, falls on Jesus in his humanity. And Paul says his attitude, his mentality was humility, thinking of you, meeting you at your greatest need. And so when Jesus comes on the scene, he says, I'm a king unlike any other. I'm a king that gives up the power to serve you. And what that does is it, it motivates you to want to serve that kind of king, one who is benevolent and one who has done what you couldn't do for yourself so that you could have eternal life. So we all end up getting it wrong, right? I mean, it's like we all end up crowning the wrong things. Let me put it that way. What is it for you? how do you know that you're crowning the wrong things? Maybe the question is, what is it that controls your heart? What fills, fills your heart? Maybe, maybe we can ask it like this. What is it that if you didn't have, that if you lost, you would be completely wrecked and undone? Whatever that thing is, it's probably the thing that you crown the most, which is another way of saying it's the thing or things that you worship. For example, let's say you lose a job 
does that devastate you to the point that you just, you're totally undone? Let's take it a step further. What if you lose a loved one? What does that do to you? I'm not saying it's easy. It's extremely difficult. But if you become completely undone because you don't have something in your life, it could be that that thing is wearing the crown. And anything that you crown other than Jesus will let you down. Your career didn't die for your sins. Your spouse didn't die for your sins. Your kids sure didn't die for your sins. And there are so many things in life that can serve as distractions, even good things. But when good things become the ultimate thing, you know, that's where the trouble begins. Uh, I, I love what, what Jesus says, how he describes himself in such a beautiful way. Matthew chapter 11, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. If that's not a description of our culture, I don't know what is. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You know what a yoke is? A yoke is that device that attaches two working animals together, and together they share the load. And so what Jesus is saying is, hey, attach yourself to me, but here's the deal. In the end, I do all the heavy lifting. I do all the heavy lifting. My yoke is light. It's easy. That was a problem with the religious leaders. They were making it hard for people. Jesus called them out. Who is Jesus to you? I think with this brief question, Jesus confronted everybody around him, including his closest followers. So Jesus is going to return. How do we know that? He came once. No reputable historian doubts the existence of Jesus of Nazareth. He came once. He's coming again. But the description is different. He's not riding a donkey. Does anybody know what he's riding on when he comes again? It's interesting, isn't it? He's riding a white horse. So this is how John gets a vision of Jesus. And notice, look at what he mentions first. First thing about Jesus. He gets this vision of Jesus. And what's he going to say about Jesus? He's like, oh, look at the complexion of Jesus. Look at the beard. Look at the long hair. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. That's the description that he leads with. So now the listener's like, wait, white horse? Details. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. I was speaking with a lady after the first service, and she was struggling with some things, some things that had happened to her. And I, you know, I said, hey, listen, this, this is your image. One day when Jesus returns, he's going to make it all right. He's going, to make, he's going to put everything right, everything that's done in darkness, the wrong and the hurt that's been done to you, Jesus is going to make all that right. He is clothed, well, I'm sorry, his eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God, and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, he will tread the wine, this is Old Testament language here, he will, of judgment. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. 
On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I remember being asked this one time by uh, one of the students, like, is this a tattoo? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> it's written on his thigh. I don't know. I can't say. You know, don't use that as your justification. Talk to mom and dad. But anyways, <laughs> Jesus is not meek and mild in a manger when he comes again. He's coming back and he's declaring his royal right to rule. And it's, it's super powerful imagery, but it paints a complete picture of who Jesus is. And I think it's important for us because in a way, Jesus, he met their expectations, but in not the way that they, they understood. You know, it's like, we want the Roman government to be conquered. Well, guess what? 300 years later, Christianity would become the religion of the Roman Empire. Uh, he actually did conquer, but not in the way they anticipated it's a revolution of the heart. So what are you crowning? I'm gonna ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. This, this is the most important part of our time together. What is it that's filling your heart? Let this be a time of encouragement and also a, a time of honest evaluation. Whatever you crown, that is essentially What leads you? What you worship will determine the course of your life. And maybe you're here this morning and perhaps for the first time you understand who Jesus is. And you say, man, I need to put the crown where it belongs, squarely on the head of Jesus. And because he's that benevolent king who initiated this amazing act of service, then I need to follow Where does that begin? It begins with simple prayer. Prayer is just communicating with God. You simply tell God that you recognize that the way you've lived your life is not at all what he's wanted. That's human nature. In, in a short word, that's what the Bible calls sin. Self-centeredness. God has a standard. We fall short. And that's a problem. The wages of sin is death. Jesus steps into that place, receives that wage on himself so that you can have eternal life. Martin Luther said, call it the great exchange. We give, we give Jesus all of our junk, and in return, he gives us eternal life. You're not going to find a better deal in life than that. Why would you possibly reject it? So you just make those, that, that, that simple declaration to him, and you begin to understand, grow in the grace and knowledge of who Jesus is. Father, our, our desire corporately as a church is to model the life of Jesus as he rode in humility with such a burdened heart for the people. And he, he was never willing to live for popularity or fame, but he dismissed it quickly by addressing the real need within every human. The need to have a heart that is transformed, cleansed, made pure, only through the, the good work of our benevolent king giving his life. Lord, may we leave this place with a better understanding, not just in the mind, but, but that heartfelt understanding, understanding the love that God had on display through the death of Jesus. And may we follow his lordship, his kingship day in and day out. Why? 
well, for our good, but ultimately, God, for your glory. We ask it, pray it, in the name of the one who makes it all possible. His name is Jesus Christ, and God's people said, amen.